Lord, we are thankful for your word. We're thankful, Lord, that you give us portions of scripture, Lord, that, um, that are real and raw and paint a very different picture than maybe we first think. Help us, Lord, as we work our way through this chapter to allow you to shape and to mold us through it to become more and more like your son, Jesus Christ. And that, Lord, in our time this morning, that you would alert us to ways that we need to grow and change. Lord, ways that we may be sinning, ways that we may be lacking trust in you. And Lord, allow me as your messenger to be faithful to your truth and to proclaim your word. We ask in your, your precious holy name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Through my uh, many years of ministry, I've had the privilege of serving in our judicial system uh, a number of times, um, three times as a juror and one time as a witness. And um, they were all, for me, really enjoyable experiences. Yes, there's the frustration of being called as a juror initially, but when you actually get into the system and you're called and you have a duty to do for your country, it becomes actually a very important thing. And I remember standing or sitting actually before a judge having been called as a juror and that judge came out and he really laid on thick the seriousness of our job as a jury. And one of the things that he emphasized was this, you need to do everything you can to ascertain the truth. Do not use this as an opportunity to push forward a political agenda because someone's life is in your hands. What matters is the truth. And you know how refreshing it was to hear that from a judge? You know, because sometimes I know there, there's some judges that, that maybe are political themselves, but it was refreshing to hear that this, I think, is the meat and potatoes of, of the judges that serve in our country. They want to bring justice when truth can be shown that the person is guilty of a crime. They want to uphold the rule of law. Another time, I, uh, I served as a witness, and when the, the prosecutor uh, addressed me, she got my name wrong, and she got the name of the church that I was serving wrong. And, of course, wanting to make sure that having, you know, laid my hand on the Bible and, and, you know, said I will speak the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, I wanted to make sure that I corrected her. Well, I was a little naive. This was in my younger years and didn't realize. Now, looking back, I see it. She was doing that deliberately to see if I would react and respond and be somewhat a, a contentious witness. I wasn't. I just said, no, my name is such and such, and this is where I serve just showing that she had got it wrong. Now, what we do when we come to a passage like we have today, we recognize this is courtroom drama. This is what is taking place here. Standing before a judge is a daunting thing to do, especially if you're being accused of something that you're not guilty of. And although our country says you're innocent until proven guilty, when you know you're innocent, it feels like everyone thinks you're guilty. They look at you with guilty eyes. They speak to you as if you are guilty. You're talked about as if you are guilty. You're treated as guilty. And that's what's happened with Paul. 
See, Paul here stands before the judge, innocent of the accusations levied against him. And what is he going to do? That's the question for us. How is he going to respond? What is he going to say? Is he going to get angry at the false charges? He could. He'd be justified. Is he going to cower and cave in to those who are out to take his life? Is he going to compromise the truth, which is an option that many people choose? The answer is an emphatic no. Paul will make his defense before a hostile crowd and do it with a clear conscience. And this morning, God wants, us, wants to teach us about standing up for Jesus with a clear conscience. And we're going to see him bring up that reality as we work through the text. But maybe to, to flesh it out even further, God's children are called to be ready to defend and proclaim the gospel in both public and private contexts with a clear conscience. So as we come to this chapter, there are two scenes before us, Paul in the courtroom and Paul in the palace. Paul in a public arena on trial, Paul in a private context being questioned by the governor and his wife. Let's jump into that first scene, defending the gospel in the courtroom, a public witness. And we want to we set the scene here in verse 1. Luke is making sure that we understand what is going on. And he's following the typical Roman protocols of, uh, of, of, of relaying a case. And in fact, he's probably doing this while he's on a journey to, to Rome, having gathered the, the data of the, the papers and the records of these trials so he could put them into his book. And this is what we read. And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, on one Tertullus. They laid before the governor the case against Paul. So it's been five days since the plot by the Jews to kill Paul had been discovered, and Lysias, the Roman tribune, carefully and swiftly sends Paul to Caesarea with the protection of 470 soldiers. 70 actually go the whole way with him. And during that time, knowing that the plot to kill Jesus had fallen apart, Ananias, the high priest, and some of the, the elders, Sadducees and Pharisees, probably worked hard to get a legal case together against Paul. Now, if they couldn't murder him by stealth, they would do all they could to manipulate the Roman government and bring these accusations so that they would see him as one who was um, uh, causing sedition. He was stirring up rebellion. And if there's one thing that Rome did not like, they would tolerate different religions, but they would not tolerate rebellion. They would squelch it fast and violently. And that's what their goal is, to see that Paul is put on trial here guilty of sedition. So to help them make their case, they hired a professional uh, lawyer to speak for them, to skillfully present the case um, before the governor, and his name is Tertullus. So here's the scene. The Roman court is in session with Judge Felix presiding. On one side, you have the prosecution, the religious Jews with their professional lawyer. Then we have the defense, Paul the Apostle, to the Gentiles, 
with the Lord standing by his side. Just remember that. He's not alone because the Lord is with him. That's the scene. Now, notice the prosecution. There are three movements that take place in Tertullus' accusation against Paul. I'll just quickly highlight them. False praise, false accusation, false witness. Now, let's look at these one by one, false praise. What we have here is, is flattery really going on. It's not unusual to have flattery in the beginning of your, your argument and your talk. Why? Because you're trying to make sure you're making a connection with the, with the judge. But what Tertullus says here, it really is an overstatement because the religious leaders were not a fan of Phoenix. Notice what he says, verse 2. Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation in every way and everywhere we accept with all gratitude. Um, there's an English word, I guess more of an American word that would describe this, and it's baloney. This is flattery, because Felix was a ruthless ruler. He was born a slave. He was raised up by Claudius, who would ultimately be the emperor of Rome. And Claudius was very much a immoral man, and he would use Felix as the I'm going to say the tool to get the things or the people that he wanted to enjoy life with. And the history books tell us that Felix was corrupt and vain and hated by the Jews. He was so corrupt that Nero, the emperor, called him back from Judah, from his service there. Now, what is true is that his ruthlessness did provide a season of peace in Judah. A couple of just uh, situations that he, was, uh, that he dealt with. He suppressed a rebellion of an Egyptian prophet who had threatened Jerusalem with thousands of followers. Remember when, uh, when the, um, the tribune first interacted with Paul? He says, are you the Egyptian? Right? I mean, this, is, this is the connection here, right? And then there was another, uh, another uprising led by Eliezer, the leader of what were called the, the dagger bearers. And all of his followers were crucified after they were captured. So he was, he was ruthless and I want to say did a good job in, in squelching uprisings. But friends, as we've so often seen, heavy-handed government might bring peace through violence and suppression, but it's not real peace. It's not real freedom. It's a peace born out of fear. I mean, just go to Afghanistan and you can see this. Go to places like China, and you can see it's fear that drives the people. It's not freedom. But it works, and it brings peace for a season. But it's really ultimately false praise. Then you have these false accusations. This is the heart of what is going on. The flattery is over, and so Tertullus moves quickly to make four accusations against Paul, which are best understood under three categories, because the two, first two really fit under the first. So first of all, Paul is a troublemaker. He's violating Roman law. This accusation is given using two expressions. And just notice them from the text. This man is a plague. Now, the word literally is a pest. Now, if I said to you, hey, this man is a pest, you would say, oh, he's a nuisance. 
But the way this word is understood in this context is much stronger than a nuisance. It's a word, pest, is short for pestilence, which is a plague, right? In other words, what what Paul is doing is he is infecting all these people with this false thinking, this false teaching, and it's undermining Rome, not just the church or not just, say, Judaism, but Rome. That's where they're trying to get here. He's spreading this infectious disease. He's spreading a religious form of COVID-19 among the Jews. He's guilty of spreading sedition. Notice next the phrase, he's one who stirs up riots. Felix, you better watch out because wherever Paul goes in the world, he stirs up riots. Now, there's an element of truth here, right? Wherever Paul goes, kind of general statement, riots do take place. But it's not Paul that's stirring up the riots. It's the Jews who don't like what he's saying as he opens up their scriptures. And they turn on him, and they cause these riots, not because of Paul at all. So Tertullus is suggesting that if Felix sets Paul free, Paul will continue to spread turmoil, disorder, and maybe even rebellion through the empire. He's a plague. But notice, Tertullus never mentions one specific instance. It's all very vague but it's an accusation, and it's an effective one. Secondly, not only is he, <clears throat> is he uh, a ring, uh, let's say a troublemaker, he's also a ringleader. And notice, he doesn't simply say Paul is the leader of the Nazarenes. No, he's careful to use three negative words to describe Paul's relationship to the Jewish law. He's a Nazarene. Why would he use the expression a Nazarene? Because Nazarene was the word or expression that was used to describe those who were followers of Jesus. Why? Because it was Jesus Christ who was a Nazarene. All right, so it's, it was a pejorative term. It was a, a condescending term. He's a follower of Jesus Christ, uh, ultimately from Nazareth. But these Jews can't even say the name Jesus. Not only that, Nazarenes are a sect, right? In other words, this is, they're not part or any subset of Judaism, he's saying. No, he's a part of a heretical group, what we would consider to be a cult. And then he's a ringleader. He's not a leader, but he's a ringleader. Again, it's a negative term that identifies a person as a leader who is in opposition to an authority or to law. So if if you have a group of people that are joining together to rob a bank and steal money, the person who's the leader is not just called a leader, he's called what? A ringleader, right? There's a negative connotation to what uh, what is being used there when that word is used. So he's a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. So Paul is a seditious ringleader of a messianic sect which stands against Jewish traditions. All right? Troublemaker, ringleader, third, he's a desecrator. He's violating God's laws. And this is interesting, isn't it? Verse, uh, verse 6, he even tried to profane the temple. 
So he was arrested for trying to profane. He didn't profane. This is what they're saying. He tried. How do you measure try? Well, you were thinking about it. Ah, you tried. You happened to be in the general area, therefore you tried. Of course, this was an out-and-out lie. This was not true. Paul had not tried to desecrate the temple. That was just the mob's accusation against him because they saw someone with him who was Greek. But it was a clever way for Tertullus to distort the truth by claiming to have uh, Paul arrested. He wasn't arrested by the Jews. He was taken by the Roman soldiers. So here's the accusation, right? He is a, a troublemaker. He's a ringleader. He's a desecrator. Now, uh, we need to feel the weight of this because these were heavy-handed accusations. And the goal was to paint Paul as this seditious uh, uh, rebel that Rome needs to look out for. And then, of course, this is all backed up with the false witness, right? The Jews, the rest of the Jews who were there, all standing behind Tertullus saying, yes, this is true, everything he said, this is what happened. And friends, it's, is it any wonder why many people in society have a distaste toward any kind of organized religion? Man-made religion will always drift towards satisfying human desires for power, for greed, for comfort, for control. And friends, there's plenty of that going on under the umbrella of the Christian church. We should be ashamed of that. And that all means that we must all be people of integrity, humble in our pursuit of Christ-likeness, champions of what is true and what is right. Now, in summary, what are the tactics of those driven by um, this ideology against Paul? Number one, they suppress the truth. They don't want to hear it. Number two, they twist the truth to make it mean something different. Third, they omit the truth. They ignore it, willfully uh, just pretending it doesn't even exist. They create their own truths. We call that fake news that suits their own agenda. All these things are happening in here, but ultimately, they hate the truth. When you have religious leaders who are standing and representing Israel for the Judaism that they believe, and they're not even willing to sit down with Paul and speak to him and debate with him from the text of Scripture, we know what's happened. They've drifted. They've gone a different direction. They do not want the truth. For them, truth doesn't matter. What matters is our sinful and selfish agenda as the religious leadership. So friends, this is, this is what's happening here. This is the prosecution. Now you say, well, I've never been under that kind of context. I understand that. But those ideas, those thoughts... They're out there. You go on social media, they're out there. You turn on the news, they're out there. These are the kind of things that are being said. Now we turn to the defense, verses 10 through 21. But before we, we get to Paul's defense in the courtroom, we would do well to just to do a flyover observation of Paul's heart attitude as he makes his defense. Because I think this is really important from our context. 
So what is his attitude in the courtroom? I have five things that I identified here. Verse 10, we begin with politeness and respect. Tertullus sought to flatter Felix. Paul, however, will do no such thing. He will show Felix respect and give him credit for the length of service he has uh, he has served and been a judge in Israel. I mean, that's what he says, right? And when the governor nodded him to him to speak, Paul replied, knowing that for many years you have been judge over this nation. <laughs> he's not flattering him at all. He's just recognizing, boy, you've had a long tenure here. Secondly, cheerfulness. He says, I cheerfully make my defense. I am glad for the opportunity to stand here and speak and make my defense. He was thankful, cheerful. And it's a reminder of the confidence and assurances that he had been given by the Lord in chapter 23, verse 10, or verse 11, where we read, this is the Lord speaking, take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. And if Paul believes that to be true, he isn't in Rome yet. Which gives you confidence. Now when you get to Rome, that might be a little different thing. But right now he's in Caesarea. You have Jerusalem, you have Caesarea, and you have Rome. This is how things are going to develop. But he's in Caesarea. He's cheerful. He wants to talk. He wants to talk about the truth. He wants to talk about the gospel. Third, integrity. He says... You can verify what Paul says is rooted in facts that Felix can seek out and verify. Paul wasn't going to give half-truths or distorted truths. He wasn't going to ignore the truth or make it up. He was going to speak the truth based on facts. As one person has said, rightly said, facts are stubborn things. Then there's his faith in God, verse 15. His hope was rooted in his sovereign God who had revealed himself in the scriptures, in the law and the prophets. And then finally, he's coming to Jerusalem with a generous heart. He's bringing an offering gathered, collected by the Gentile churches for the poor believers that are in Jerusalem. I'm just saying that this all kind of shows us something about the heart of the man who is going to be standing now and make his defense. And it's a reminder to us that if we're going to speak in public to defend our faith in Christ, whether it be in a courtroom, whether it be just simply be in a public setting, that our hearts must be fashioned and shaped by Christ. Ed began this morning by talking to you about our need to grow to add to our faith. And we as believers must continue to, to allow Christ to change us and to mold us and to shape us. Now the reality is that we are going to be fearful of man to some degree. That's a struggle that we all face. But we can rest in God's providence to work through us. So if we could summarize Paul's goal, he makes his defense before Felix and his accusers. This is what it would be. It would be what the genie says while taking the form of a bee and he's speaking to Aladdin who wants to let Jasmine know of his love for her 
What does he say? Tell the truth. You remember that? Maybe too old for you. Maybe you need to have kids and you can watch a Disney movie again. Tell the truth. If people don't understand the truth, if they don't believe the truth, if they're offended by the truth, your conscience is clear. Why? Because you've told the truth. The alternative is going to get you in hot water. Tell the truth. That's what Paul is doing throughout his defense. Let's look at it now, Paul's defense in the courtroom. Having received the nod from the governor Felix, he now makes his defense. And we'll look at it under four headings. First of all, I have broken no religious laws. Now, it says in verse 11, you can verify that it's not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. And they did not find me disputing with anyone, or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city, nor can they prove to you what they were now bringing against me. It's been 12 days. Now, just think about the math here. I have been in prison here in Caesarea for five days. I was in prison in Jerusalem for one day, so that leaves six days. How much stirring up of trouble can someone do in six days? Well, there's more to the story here because for those six days, where was Paul? He was in the temple going through a rite of purification. Where was this going to happen? Right? During that time, they did not find him disputing. He was not in the synagogue. He was in no place stirring up the crowd. It just didn't happen. I've not broken any religious laws. Secondly, I am a follower of the way. Paul confesses that he is a worshiper of God according to the way. Aha, see, told you. And he it's like, you know what? I'm going to acknowledge this. What they call a sect, he says. But the truth is, he says, I worship the God of our fathers, <laughs> just like the Jews do. I believe everything written in the scriptures, right? The law and the prophets, just like the Jews do. My hope is in God and his resurrection, which means, or which these men accept, of course, there are Pharisees there. He's pointing now to them because they're the ones that accepted that and affirmed that, and he knows that the Sadducees don't believe that. So the point here is this. How is it if these Pharisees who believe what I believe, that the resurrection is coming, there's going to be a separation of the righteous and the unrighteous, they can be accepted, but if I hold the same belief, I am not. It's unjust. It's unjust for the accusers to believe the same thing, finding me guilty of it, guilty of sedition, when they hold to the same beliefs. You see, he's really clever here, isn't he? Do you see what Paul is saying? My faith that these men are saying is a heretical sect is rooted in the God of our fathers, the scriptures, and the resurrection. I'm not the one who strayed off course here into a man-made religion. No, I am the one who is consistent with the teaching of our fathers and the scriptures that promise that a resurrection will take place. He's modeling for us, go back to the word, go back to the word, go back to the word, 
go back to the Word. The Word is always our standard. The Word is always what guides us, friends. To be sure, Paul would like nothing more than to be able to have an honest discussion and debate with the religious leaders about the Scriptures and what they reveal about what the fathers believed and longed for. But guess what? The religious leaders would not bite that because they know that if they have a, de a debate about the Scriptures, Paul is going to run circles all around them. Why? Because they did not believe in them. Third, I have caused no civil disorder. These men accuse me of being a plague and one who stirs up riots. But when I came to Jerusalem, I came to do two things, to present an offering and to worship at the temple. We find that in verse 17. It says, now after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. These are the facts. I was in the temple for those six days. They came. They started up a riot. I was protected and rescued by tri the tribune, and I was put in jail in Jerusalem, but now I'm here. All those days are taken up. So there's no desecration that has taken place at all. The truth is that the ones who are a plague and are guilty of stirring up the crowds are the Jews from Asia who had been chasing Paul around and come ultimately to Jerusalem. But where are they? Why are not they here to make an accusation against me? And if there's no one there to make an accusation based on facts, how can you find me guilty? Fourth, I did proclaim the resurrection. This is the only issue that, that they have come with me is that when Lysias the Tribune brought me before the Jewish council, I shouted out, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you today. They didn't like it. These men were there, and they cannot give you anything that is evidence of any wrongdoing. Why? Because the Pharisees also believe in that. Now, all I'm trying to show you, and all, all Luke is trying to show us here is this, that when Paul gets up to speak, he's not doing anything fancy. He's not... He's not really using many clever tactics here. I mean, he, he is wise in that sense. He's bringing some things in. He's not using flattery. He's just saying, look, you're accusing me of this. That couldn't happen. Here's why. They're accusing me of, of, of following the way. That is true. But let me show you that the way actually is orthodox. It actually flows out of the very scriptures that these men say they believe. Let's talk about it. You accuse me. Um, of, of causing sedition. That's not happened. That didn't take place. I wasn't the one that caused a riot. Where's the evidence? The people that did cause the riot aren't even here. So friends, if God ever calls you to stand before a group of people in a public setting to give testimony or witness for Christ, learn from Paul. Here's three things that we can just quickly reflect from what we've seen so far. First of all, trust God's 
providence. We heard that last week. I want you to hear it again because it's driving what's happening here. Paul is resting in his providence. God is working out his will, and he will work out his will through your strengths and weaknesses. You get up and you try and make some argument or make some statement, and it just all comes out, blah, 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 right? That's what we fear is standing in front of a crowd and just making a fool of ourselves. Guess what? God's at work. He's at work through your weakness. Oh, I just failed God today. No, you do the best you can to, to, to make a good representation of God, but God knows your weaknesses, and he works in spite of your failures. He accomplishes his purposes when you are fearful and confused, which often happens in a public arena. His power is made perfect in our weakness, we are told. So rest in his providence. Do all you can to trust, trust him. Work hard at your skill and your ability. Secondly, tell the truth. It's often true that those who are your opponents don't care about what is true, so they will attempt to use clever tactics to throw you off and to you know, create arguments that you will chase after. Just step back and tell the truth. When you are unsure, tell the truth. And when you are certain, tell the truth. Third, tie in the gospel. Look for ways to give an answer for the hope that is in you. Be careful not just to throw out Christian jargon and platitudes. Allow the word to come out of your mouth. Read it, quote it, explain it. You never know what door of opportunity might be open for you. All right? Now, notice the judgment. This last part. Here's Felix now. He's taking all this in. He's listening to what's being said. He's, remember, he's received this letter from Lysias, the tribune, and he has, we're told, a rather accurate knowledge of the way. And so he could see through the lies and the maneuvers of the Jewish religious leaders. They had not proven their case. And it was clearly a case motivated by anger and jealousy, not by facts. And it was clear that they had distorted and manipulated the truth to paint Paul as a as, as one who was stirring up a rebellion. But Felix didn't actually make a final decision, did he? He, we're told, he put them off. There's no reason to put him off. Why? It's clear that Paul's not guilty. And he's already had a letter from the tribune, Lysias. Why then would he have to talk with him again? All the information is there. What Felix should have done is to acquit Paul of any wrongdoing and release him as a free man. But the injustice here is that he keeps him in custody. And we'll find out he keeps him in custody for two years. Now, he was in custody, but we're told he did have freedoms. His friends could come and be with him and attend to his needs. This is not the outcome you and I would want from a trial where we clearly are found innocent. But the decision, as we can probably understand, is not based on the facts and the truth. It's based on political maneuvering. 
So Paul now was, a, in a sense, a pawn in the hands of Felix. But remember, he's safely in the hands of God. So now we're going to shift focus because the, the text shift focus and finishes out here with Paul proclaiming the gospel in the palace. And you have to wonder whether or not God's ultimate agenda here is not to have Paul released, which I think is what chapter 23, 11 is saying. It's that he is going to remain in custody for a purpose and we find now a purpose for Paul. So we move from Paul defending the gospel in public to Paul proclaiming the gospel in private, in the palace where Felix and his wife, Drusilla, lived. Now, we want to ask a couple of questions here. First question, how does Paul proclaim God's word in a private context? Well, I want you to notice, first of all, that he is bold about the gospel. Look at verse 24. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for, for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. He didn't change his tune. He didn't change what he was speaking about. He continued to proclaim the gospel, even in this private setting. So Paul transitions from speaking in public to ministering in private, but that doesn't change the heart of his message. Does, does your gospel message change? Does your positional message with people change based on the size of the group, the people that you're speaking to? See, he's still bold to proclaim faith in Christ Jesus. Why? Because he knows that Felix and Drusilla's greatest need is their conversion. And you can imagine Paul on different occasions reasoning with them from the Scriptures saying things like, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and to the Greek. And probably he's pointing at Drusilla to the Jew first, and he's pointing at Felix, Felix saying, and to the Greek. God chose me in Christ before the foundation of the world. Or how about this one? In Christ we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Or we are dead in our trespasses and sins following the course of this world. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we are dead in our trespasses, makes us alive together with Christ. It is by grace that we are saved. Oh, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Christ delivers us from the domain of darkness and transfers us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. Although you are alienated, hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, God can reconcile you through Christ's death. It is by grace that you are saved through faith, not of your works. Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. All I've done there is just pulled from Paul's letters things that he said to various people about the gospel. You just imagine him day after day coming in, here's the gospel, here's the gospel, here's the gospel. So, he's bold about the gospel. Secondly, he's clear about morality. Paul wasn't just there to proclaim the gospel. He was willing to meddle. 
with gospel implications. And you have to understand, there is a context here. Why? Because the marriage of Felix, who was a Gentile, to Drusilla, who was a Jew, was quite scandalous in several ways. Here's why. Drusilla was the youngest daughter of Herod Agrippa, whom we saw in Acts 12. She was Felix's third wife. Agrippa II, whom we'll see in chapter 5, is her younger brother. When Drusilla was 14 years old, she was married to King Azizus of Emesa, which is a region in Syria. And by all accounts, we're told that Drusilla was a beauty. And when Felix meets her, he is consumed with passion for her. And he convinces her to have her marriage to Azizus dissolved, and she broke her marriage vows and married Felix, an uncircumcised Gentile, which was contrary to the law. I mean, there's all sorts of things there that would be fireworks of offense in a Jewish context. So Felix is on his third wife, and Drusilla is on her second husband. And at this time of, this, of the encounter, Drusilla would have been about 19 years old. And Paul is going to speak about righteousness, about self-control, and a coming judgment. Righteousness, that God is holy, and because he is holy, he requires the people of his creation to live in holiness. Let's just understand this, friends, that Conversion isn't the end of the story. Conversion brings about new life in Christ that is fashioned and shaped by God's truth. God is holy, and he requires holiness from us. There is none righteous, Scripture says, no, not one. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God uh, is plain to them because God has shown it to them. There's a need for righteousness, and righteousness can only come not through doing things, but through clothing yourself with the righteousness of Christ. Secondly, self-control. In Roman culture, self-control was achieved by self-discipline. We get into Christian teaching, self-control is achieved by the work of God's Spirit in the life of the believer. And so he's saying to them, based on your life, look, holiness is critical before God. Self-control is critical before God, and you haven't been doing it. And finally, the coming judgment, right? There's going to be a final judgment when God will either reward people for their faith or condemn them for their unbelief. Paul, in speaking about righteousness and self-control and coming judgment, is going for the jugular in confronting Felix and Drusilla with the lives that they have been living. They were not righteous. They had not exercised self-control. And they were awaiting the coming judgment. And on, although it was directed specifically for Felix and Drusilla to reveal their standing before God, it is a message that any Jew or Gentile needs to hear. We need to hear it. 
See, so many, so many in the church are happy to say, oh, you know, I, want, I, want, I follow Christ. I, I'm, a, I'm a Christian now. While, at the very same time, while they are behaving in a way that is not holy before God and thinking nothing of it, I probably described about, I don't know, 70% of the church in America. There's just there's this attitude that says, all that matters is I got my ticket to heaven. Now leave me alone. I'm going to do what I want. That's not Christianity, friends. Conversion brings about new life where Jesus is our master. We are his followers, and the means by which we know what he desires of us is revealed to us through his word. And so we not only have to have an orthodoxy, what we believe, we have to have an orthopraxy. It means our, our behavior needs to reflect what we say we believe, and the conversion we have experienced. So he's bold about the gospel. Secondly, he's clear about morality. Third, he's patient with God. I don't know if this struck you at all. Verse 27, when two years had elapsed, two years, Paul had been traveling all over Mesopotamia, all over the Mediterranean, right? All over Greece and, 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 and just all over that, the Gentile world, proclaiming the gospel, going into the synagogues and teaching from the scriptures. It's exciting. Now he's stuck for two years speaking to two unbelievers, a Jew and a Greek. You could understand if Paul got discouraged. <laughs> Two years his audience listened, but would not heed his words. I wonder if he, in, in his own personal time, thought about what ministry had been like compared to what ministry was like now. But what the text is telling us is that Paul remained faithful even in that context to proclaim the gospel and the fruit of its morality for two years. Friends, no matter where God places us, before crowds, before small gatherings, or before one or two people, God's ministry continues. You may be asking yourself the question today, can God still use me? I've served him faithfully. Now I'm too old. I've done my time. But this passage will say for us, if you're still breathing, God is still working. All those one or two people that you're interacting with you know, today and over the course of your life now, compared to maybe the larger group of people that you're interacting with, they are just as important to God. What's happened is you have the same God, same gospel, the same servant, but in a different context. But it is no less important. And I know there, there are some of you here who just wrestle with how is God using me in my context? I mean, I'm a mom of, of five kids. How, how do I get to 
have an impact on this world. I mean, I'm changing diapers and chasing people, you know, little ones all over the place. How do I have an opportunity? Or maybe you're older and you're struggling with your health and so you're not able to get out that much and you're like, you know, I interact with just a few people. Is God done with me? No, he's not. The problem is we measure the magnitude of our, I would say, Christian impact by variables or numbers that are very Americanized. They're not biblicized. In our country, oh, you, know, you meet need another pastor, or maybe you talk about your church. You say, oh, I go to Gateway Bible Church. And people say, oh, you know, the very first thing, how many people go to that church? Right? Oh, well, you know, about 100 Oh, well, our church, you know, we have a 1,000 people. And I'm not knocking the church. I'm just saying we're so fixed with numbers. And you just kind of whittle that down on a personal level. (laughs) What happens when what you had been doing is no longer what you are doing? And in your mind, you feel like I'm stuck with these people. Well, these people are your ministry. And it's a God-given ministry. Do the same thing, proclaim the same gospel, serve the same God where God has placed you. He's patient with God. Now, how did Felix respond to all this? Again, let's reflect on our text. Here's what we're told. First of all, he had a comprehension about the way. We're told that a little bit earlier, aren't we? We don't know how. We don't know To what degree he had comprehension, it would appear that it was enough for him to see through Paul's accusers. Maybe it was through his Jewish wife, Drusilla, who had some understanding and brought it to him. But friends, there are many people in this world today who have a comprehension about the gospel. Maybe they learned it from a parent. Maybe they learned it from uh, attending church as a child. Or maybe they went to a Christian school. Or maybe while they were in college, they had a roommate that was a friend. Or maybe they just had a friend who was a believer and who was consistent in their, in their church going. Somewhere along the way, the gospel was explained to them by face-to-face. Maybe they read it in a book or they heard it on the radio. But their friends, there's a huge difference between comprehending the gospel and actually being converted. And I think one of the challenges for us as a church is not settling for our children or people who are attending to simply comprehend the truth. Now, we certainly want that, but that's not sufficient. I mean, you can, you can argue theology. You can talk about application. But if you're not converted, He had comprehension about the way. Secondly, he was curious about the way. He wanted to hear from Paul. He and Drusilla would have him come. They would send for him. And as this, as this happened, he would hear more. He was curious about the gospel. Again, curiosity is not conversion. And there are often people who attend church more out of curiosity than because they're being drawn. Don't mistake comprehension and curiosity as you being a follower of Christ. Third, he was convicted by the gospel or by the way. Notice in, uh, I think it's verse 25, Felix was alarmed and said, this is after Paul had spoken about righteousness, 
self-control and the coming judgment. He's alarmed. That word literally means in fear. He was frightened. He was terrified. And so he sends Paul away. Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. He's driven by fear. This conviction stirs his heart. But here's the point. The moment of conviction and opportunity pass. And we know that because of what we read next. And here's the fourth thing. He became calloused to the way. Verse 28 says, or 26 says, at the same time he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. The goal of his interactions moved from hearing about the gospel to, I hope you give me some money. His heart had become dead to the truth of the gospel. And his interaction was only there for selfish purposes. Friends, Felix kicked the can of the gospel down the road one too many times until his heart changed from curiosity to greed. Friends, the fruit of the gospel, of gospel ministry, isn't always conversions. Sometimes it is reinforcing the calloused heart of unbelief. Just hear that. Your faithful witness isn't always measured successfully by a conversion. Your faithful gospel witness can result in a further callousing of the heart of unbelief, justifying that person is rightly sent to an eternity apart from God because of their unbelief. And he said, that's kind of a strange way to look at it. It's the reality, friends. A faithful witness sows the seed of the gospel, but leaves the germinating of that seed in the heart of man up to God. Can God break through a callous heart? He can. But we leave that up to God. Friends, I just want to bring this to a close by reminding you of a, of a story that you know very, very well. And as I'm thinking about Paul here standing in this courtroom, being accused falsely of things, and standing up for Jesus with a clear conscience, there's only one story that came to mind, and that's on April 17, 1521. Martin Luther appears before the Diet of Worms in Germany, refusing again to recant. And Luther concluded his testimony with the defiant statement, here's what it says, unless I am convinced by scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of the popes and the councils for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything for, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. God help me. Amen. We live, friends, out of that legacy. We are people who are called to stand up for Jesus with a clear conscience. Truth and a clear conscience are the biblical response in every situation. Lord, help us to learn from this text to be people of the truth, who speak the truth, in difficult situations, 
Lord, that we're willing to do it with a clear conscience and for your glory. We are frail. Lord, we often will blunder with our words. We will struggle because of fear and confusion. But Lord, you are still at work. So Lord, help us to to be mindful that you are with us, that you are still guiding us, and you're, you're accomplishing your purposes, Lord, even through our weak gospel witness. But Lord, help us to be faithful, to stand up for you, to speak the truth with a clear conscience. We ask this now in your name. Amen.